Turn in your Bibles, if you would, as we're going through the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, looking in verse number 17. I think these verses will be on the screen, but heads up, today we're going to be turning in our Bibles, and they won't be on the screen with three other passages of Scripture. So it'll be in the Psalms and I think the book of Revelation. So if you're in your Bible in Daniel chapter 2, oh, hang on. Before we get started, I forgot. Michael, is that video queued up? The Daniel animation? Okay, we're going to start with a little recap and an overview of Daniel, and then we'll get into our text in Daniel chapter 2 and 17. Go ahead, Michael, if you would. set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David, Daniel, whose later name Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now, this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refused to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted. They're thrown into a fiery furnace, but God delivers them from death, and they're exalted by the king who now acknowledges their God as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings, the father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. They're both filled with pride because of their imperial power. And so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions, which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God, and both kings arrogantly resist. 
So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God, and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God, and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a god, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts. And like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast, identified as a really evil empire. And it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of man, who's an image for both God's covenant people, but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution, these are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. But they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience, that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that, and that's what these final three visions set out to explore. In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision about the final two beasts of chapter 7, but this time they're symbolized by a ram, who we're told is an image of the empire of the Medes and Persians, and then by a goat, who's an image of ancient Greece. And out of the goat come a whole bunch of horns, one of which symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7. And we're told more about him, that he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God, who will exalt his people and his kingdom. Now by chapter 9, Daniel is very puzzled, especially as to when all of this is going to take place. And so he consults the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where God said that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. So for Daniel, the 70 years is almost up. And so he asks God to fulfill his promise soon. But an angel comes and informs him that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. And so their time of exile and oppression will continue on seven times longer than Jeremiah envisioned. Daniel is deeply disturbed by this, and he has one final vision. 
We're shown the same sequence of kingdoms. It's Persia, then Greece, and Alexander the Great, followed by lesser kings, all leading up to this final king of the north, who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt himself above God. But then, all of a sudden, this king comes to ruin. Now, there's been endless debate about what all of these visions refer to. Many see a clear connection to the exploits of the Syrian king Antiochus in the 160s BC. He killed many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. Others think it points forward to the Roman Empire's role in the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple in AD 70. And still others think it will be fulfilled in future events that have yet to happen when Jesus will return. Now the problem is that the symbols and the numbers, they don't quite match any of these views perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that in a sense they are all right. The book of Daniel has been designed to offer hope to all future generations of God's people. It did so in the days of Antiochus' empire, and it has ever since. This is why Jesus could use imagery from Daniel to describe and confront the oppressive leaders he confronted in Jerusalem. This is why John, the visionary who wrote the Revelation, could adapt Daniel's visions and apply them to Rome of his day and also all future oppressive empires. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. It's a pattern that human beings in their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong, and don't acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. Amen. So I wanted to share that again. I know that I shared that about a month ago when we first started, but it's very fitting because uh, the title of today's message from Daniel chapter 2 is The Rise and Fall of God's and governments, the rise and fall of gods and governments. So back to the slides where we had uh, Daniel chapter 2. Looking at verse 17, the Bible says, Then Daniel went to his house um, and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and his companions. And the reason why he went is, remember, the king was having these night frights. He couldn't sleep, and he told all of his occult pagan um, you know, uh, employees that he had hired, the astrologers, the palm readers, the, the tarot cards, the Ouija board users, all this stuff in the occult that they're trying to get uh, unseen information into the seen realm. They couldn't, si they couldn't with confidence say, King, we could tell you your dream. Just tell us your dream and then we'll give you some sort of interpretation like the tea leaves or some sticks or they'll do some sort of occult ritual to do it. And he said, no, I need to know for a certainty that you are who you say you are. If you can't tell me my dream, in other words, read my mind, I'm not going to give you a clue to what's on my mind. Then I know you're a fraud. And so he put out this death threat that if, if, if all of these people couldn't do what they were hired to do, then he's like, you're of no use to me. I'm going to wipe you out. He, he says, I'm going to tear you from limb to limb and bring your house down to ashes. I mean, these are pretty pretty large threats, and not idle threats, one that the king, the, the most powerful person on the planet at the time, uh, would most certainly make sure comes to pass. So Daniel finds out about this. Then Daniel went to his house and made 
his three friends known, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but their Hebrew names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in verse uh, 17, and told them to seek mercy from God, the God of heaven, concerning this mystery. So Daniel's saying, hey, gentlemen, we need to have a prayer meeting tonight because the king is going to kill us. They were considered, remember, they went to three years of deprogramming school from chapter 1, where the king, after he took a siege of Israel and, and Jerusalem, he picked out the choices of the, of the young boy, so he picked out four, and he sent them to his deprogramming school where they could learn the, the secret arts and mystery religions of the past. Like, in other words, fallen angel, demonic occult. So they were trained in the occult, but they still, even though they had all that training, that the, that the sorcerers and the magicians and the necromancers, they, they, didn't, they didn't side with that because they went with God. They knew the Old Testament. In verse 18, and so he told them to seek the mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be killed with the rest of the wise men or the occultists of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, and here's what he said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. Here's the, here's the key that I'm getting the title for the message. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and in the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now uh, made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known unto us the king's matter. And when later on in the chapter, which we'll get to next time, um, he says, this is impossible with men. I don't know what's on your mind, king. I can't read your mind, but I know a God, the one true and living God, who alone reveals secrets. So Daniel is very... Uh, defer, he defers to God. He, in other words, not by my might, not by my strength, but by your spirit, O Lord. So Daniel knows that in him, he doesn't have his sufficiency, like in Sunday school, was not of him, but his sufficiency and insight and wisdom had to come from God. And you'll see this play out uh, throughout the entire book. Daniel always deferring to the glory of God and his faith in God. So, next slide if you would. So God is the raiser-upper and the taker-downer of gods and governments. Go to the next slide. So kind of back to the verse, Daniel chapter 2, verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Again, he's deferring. God knows. Hey, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, let's have a prayer meeting. If God doesn't give us this information, if he doesn't download us from heaven what, what's on the mind of the king, which is an impossible thing to understand. And you've got to know in the New Testament, Jesus says what's impossible with man is possible with God. All things are possible to God. And so this is an impossible thing to read the, to read the mind. And it already happened in, in you know, the, the king's waiting. He already had this dream. He's waiting... So you have to kind of go backlog if you're a real mind reader, which psychics couldn't pull this off. He had the best psychics, the best, you know, 
telekinesis, telepathic. He had the best of the best of all the occult in, on his payroll, and none of them could do it. And so Daniel says, hey, listen, guys, we need to have a prayer meeting because we need to be able to have access into the psyche and the mind of the king, the most powerful person on earth right now. So if God doesn't do this, we're all going to die. So he says this, God alone changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So God is the raiser-upper and the taker-downer of human government. And the reason why I feel like that video, that animation was important is because the book of Daniel gives you hope. The book of Daniel is really kind of, it shows you the kingdoms of men from a Gentile perspective. Most of the Old Testament's it's about Israel from a Jewish perspective. Daniel, and I think that's why the, those middle sections were written in Aramaic, because Aramaic was the, the, the lingua franca, or the language of the day. It would be like, you, did you, I don't know if you knew this, but French at one time was the lingua franca. I think that is French. Uh, in other words, if you went to court in Switzerland, if you went to court in Germany, if you went to court uh, anywhere in Europe, France or French was the official language. Now, kind of out of practicality, English is, but back in the day it was Aramaic. If you're going to get official stuff done, government, uh, governmentally, uh, geopolitically, it was Aramaic. So that, that it was written in Aramaic kind of speaks to the fact that this is coming to a Gentile perspective. So in Daniel chapter 2, we, we haven't got there yet. We will get there. But his vision, he, God reveals, okay, these kingdoms that are going to come, it's going to be you, of course, king. You're the greatest. You're the best. You're the baddest. You're, you know, you're the bee's knees. You're the greatest thing since canned beer or sliced bread. You're it, king. You know, he's doing all that stuff to the king. But there's going to come the Medes and the Persians. And I hate to break it to you in your dream, there's going to come the Greeks, Alexander the Great. It's said of Alexander the Great that he was so swift and so um, precise in his military campaigns that you didn't even know he was coming, and it took him little to no resources to get the task done. In other words, he didn't lose very, he, didn't, he hardly ever lost. If he wanted something, he took it, Alexander the Great. And so and he's, ah, oh, by the way, and there's going to be another kingdom that's even better than the Greeks, and it's going to be the Romans. And you, and you know a lot about the, the Roman Empire and their expansion. So Daniel's going to cover that. And I, I think what's interesting is Daniel is the historical and prophetic record of Gentile nations and kings, key players with their rise and fall. And you know about Rome, Rome, you know, there's, there's two different Romes. There's a there's an Eastern and Western Roman Empire. One kind of faded away in the 400s, the other one in the 1100s AD. But Rome kind of imploded from within. No one really took it over. And so it's going to be interesting how that plays out in prophecy, where, where most prophecy scholars say that a revived Roman Empire is going to be kind of the reemergence of this kingdom that, that was and that is and that will be. So, Atheists, anthropologists, and secular archaeologists have doubted the authenticity of the book of Daniel simply because it's so precise and accurate. It's so accurate, they're like, how could he have 
years before these kingdoms. How could he have even seen that coming? And so people have uh, doubted the authenticity. But we know that the book was written hundreds of years before, not hundreds of years after. That's just, just, these people just don't have faith. And they don't have logic or reason. So as we look backwards to the historicity and the rise and fall of Babylon, though, let us also consider that it's an archetype of things to come. In other words, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar as the one man that you need to worship him. If you don't worship him, you will be killed. It's an archetype. It's a type. It's a picture of the Antichrist who, when he comes, who Daniel references, by the way, in Daniel 7, Daniel 8, uh, Daniel 11, 12, so he's all over the book of Daniel because this archetype, which is basically going back to Nimrod, who is this one world leader, one world government, one world person to be worshipped and followed. Nebuchadnezzar it was kind of that, that um, secondary prototype, so to speak, of this one that should come, this man of sin, the son of perdition, this offspring of Satan, this this faux Jesus Christ, this imitation savior, this fake Messiah. And Jesus said, hey, don't be deceived. There's going to be many false Christs, many antichrists, many, many of these messiahs. But there will be one, this little horn that comes up. That It's like when, when the Bible and Daniel says this little horn, the antichrist, when he comes, it's as though he's, you didn't see him. You didn't see him coming. That's why you don't, you don't know who the antichrist is. It, like, he's so obscure that he's so, um, like, under the radar, you don't know who he is. That's why he's a little horn, and he grows mighty and mighty and mighty, and then he gets all this power, and then, boom, before, it's too late. You're under his spell. You're under his system. You're, you're under, like, Nebuchadnezzar's sort of uh, dictatorship and, and domination. It's almost like if you're in China on the social credit scoring with facial recognition, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, I want to get some, I want to get some sushi. I'm going to stay at the, wait, my card, my card doesn't work? You're looking at the cameras. Why? Is it for what I typed on the internet? And I, I looked at what, what freedom, I wanted to go watch that movie about freedom? Wait, I, I just, I just Googled something about, like, the American constitution. You know, and it's shut down. Nope, nope, nope. It's, that's like a prototype of the, the global domination of what the little horn that grows to, to rule the world will actually do. And we'll get into that. I'm getting a little sidetracked. But I want you to know that God has control of every heart of every ruler, seen and unseen, that ever, that ever uh, was and is and will be. So look at this next passage. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like rivers of water. He turns it whithersoever he wills, or wherever he wants. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1. The, heart, the, the king's heart, any king, any president. Did you watch the coronation of the king of England? I'm just asking myself why. That's just interesting. Interesting. I don't want to get sidetracked. But king, a real, and you think, oh, that's just for chess. That's just for, you know, sci-fi and fantasy movies. No, a real king. A real king. And with real power. 
But God knows this. He knows, he knows the times that, the, when, the, the, when the Bible says when the times of the Gentiles is over, the times of the Gentiles mean ever since the, the last king of Israel was kicked off uh, the throne, that Davidic prophecy is when Jesus comes back and takes the throne of David. That ends the rule of Gentile rulership. And they've been evil. Some have been good. Most have been evil. But God uses them for his purposes. So the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it, whether so he will, including that of Nebuchadnezzar. So consider Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Look at on the screen, Jeremiah 27, 5. It is I who by my great power, my outstretched arm, have made the earth with the men, the animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whoever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. You're like, wait, what? This dude isn't a Christian. He's not saved. He doesn't believe in God. He believes in gods. He believes in these fallen angels. He follows, like, Satanism and the occult and everything pagan and dark. He's into magic and witchcraft and sorcery and all that stuff that's forbidden. And he says, well, he's my servant, and I've given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson, who we saw on that, that um, animation, until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. Which Daniel, he reveals that to uh, Nebuchadnezzar as well. Look at Daniel chapter 4 and verse 32. And you, Nebuchadnezzar, shall be driven uh, from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and uh, seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wills. And so, so <laughs> it's like Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh's like, okay, Moses. Could you imagine? Pharaoh's got his occult people on his payroll, too. They know the dark arts. They know, we don't think this stuff exists because we think it's just in the movies. This, if you believe the Bible, it's a supernatural book. So Pharaoh's standing there, and if you think about just the staff, you know, they throw down their staff, his sorcerers, and they turn into snakes. Moses didn't do this. He's like, Aaron, you do it. I don't know. I don't want to talk to these guys. So Aaron does it, and it turns into a snake, and then he eats the other ones. What, what would you do if you were in the court and you saw that happen? You read it, and what do you think? It's like a Sunday school story for little kids in a flannel graph? I mean, seriously, what do you think about that? If you really saw that, what would you, what would, how would that change the way you think? We're such an empiric, empirically, like, what it, we're the age of reason, postmodern culture that we, we think, like, that's not science. I, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. Right? Nacho Libre, if you haven't seen it. Best movie ever. I don't believe in God. I believe in science. Well, okay. What if you saw some, some pieces of wood turn into snakes? And then you saw another guy that had, okay, that's cool. My, my staff was going to turn into snakes better than your snakes, and he's going to eat them. I, okay, I was in India one time, and they sat me down because I, 
I'm not going to show that, but I was like, are there Cobras out here? Because you have to go, I had to do number one. I had to go tinkle out in the streets, you know, but it was nighttime, and I'm like, I, I'm a little sketched out because the grass is really high, and I'm like, are there snakes? And they're like, yeah, we got Cobras all over here, and they bite people all the time. And they sat me down with a real snake charmer, and they had baskets, and he unloaded the baskets, and these Cobras came out. They were like full mask and hissing and one of them, like, he hit the ground, like, four feet from my feet. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I jumped out of my chair. And they're like, oh, you know, calm down, calm down. And he's playing the he's charming them. And I'm like, I'm not calm at all. This is like real snakes. What would you do if you saw, if, these, if he showed up with a staff and threw it down and then it became a snake, that would have even freaked me out even more. The cobras themselves were freaky. But talk about freaky deaky as if it was a, <laughs> a staff, then a snake. All I'm getting at is that this, this Bible that we read is supernatural. What was going on also, let me just tell you this, in Daniel chapter 4, where, you know what happened to, to King Nebuchadnezzar? He turned into a beast that had feathers. I'm going to ask you something. Do you believe the Bible? Do you really believe the Bible? Do you really believe the Bible? Or do you want to explain it away? You're like, yeah, that's, not, that's a metaphor. That's, that he's eating grass. You know, that's so read the whole chapter. Chapter 4, we'll get there. Do you believe the Bible? The Bible is a supernatural book. You think all the cool stuff is written by Marvel and DC. I tell you, I tell you not. Your gods wear spandex. You've got big problems. This stuff's real. And it was chimeric. God is able, <laughs> I was saying in Sunday school about, uh, not Russell Brand, I think, what was it, Stuart Brand? What's his name? I forget his first name. Where he's doing the um, de-extinction program where he's genetically modifying uh, elephant DNA with woolly mammoths because they found remains of woolly mammoths all over, mostly up in Siberia and Russia. Uh, and they've taken the fur and some of the, the DNA from the bones and stuff like that. And they're making a hybrid so that they could repopulate woolly mammoths in that region. So that's what we're able to do genetically today. Make a woolly mammoth. We'll just take it, we'll just use science. But God did it with, with Nebuchadnezzar, who thought he could become like God that he would be worshipped as God, that, he, that everyone, if you don't bow down and worship me, you will be killed. And God says, do you not remember? I revealed your dream to you. And still, he, it's like he had spiritual amnesia. He did not remember that God knows, he alone could read minds. The devil can't read your mind. He could predict your patterns. You're pretty easy. You're pretty predictable. You're pretty stinking predictable. Social media can predict you. Advertisers that, that run advertisement campaigns, they know what you like. You're pretty easy. You're pretty easy. But when it comes to reading your mind, that's the business of God. So Nebuchadnezzar didn't know that, and so or he, he knew that, and then he forgot it. And then he was, you know, saying, I'm going to... Everyone needs to worship me. And Daniel's like, I can't go with the program, dude. I'm only going to worship God. And he's like, okay, I'm going to burn you in the fiery furnace. 
God had to humble uh, this king who thought he was going to be the king of kings, and he wasn't. But just to show you even furthermore, just the ruling of the affairs of God and government and kings. Look at this next one in Acts. So in Acts chapter 13, they're kind of going backwards and doing a history lesson about the nation of Israel. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man uh, of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. So God alone answers to no one. He has absolute autonomous power. He doesn't ask for permission. He doesn't go to a committee for a vote. God alone answers to no one. It's unique to God because he's, he's the only one that's uncreated. If he had someone that created him, he would have a superior. But in the hierarchy of everything, he's the God of gods. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Yes, there are lords. Yes, there are gods. You better get, you better get this. There are gods. There are gods. There are gods. He's the God of them, and he created all of them. But he alone is unique in that no one created him. He has no beginning. He has no end. He was in the beginning when he created time, and he'll be at the end when it's going to end, but he's outside of all of it because he, he's the uncreated creator of all things seen and unseen. So when it comes to nations and kings and rulers like Babylon, let's get it straight. God is in control. He's not intimidated by this. Go to the next one. That's where we started. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings, and he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those that have understanding. You think Putin is a big threat to God? Do you think Putin is going to accidentally hit the big, <laughs> the big button and like, oh, oh no, what did I do? <laughs> That's very poor Russian. Because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> MADS, the doctrine of MADS, mutually assured destruction, <laughs> it's a doctrine all, all world leaders, all nuclear superpower nations know the MADS doctrine. Mutually assured destruction. Oh, no, I accidentally pressed the button. <laughs> What is going to happen? Well, you're going to be gone. We're going to be gone. And then other people that have nuclear, everyone's going to be gone. Do you think God, who created this planet, is going to just like, oh, man, I was sleeping. What happened? How did these kings kind of circumvent my will and my plan? How did they, how did they bypass my, my sovereignty? How did they get away with it? Now I sound like Jerry Seinfeld. God, I don't know why. So let's look at this next slide. The fallen angels know they can't win against God. They know it, but they deceive human entities to somehow think that we can. Let's consider this prophetic psalm, if you would. Go with me to Psalm chapter 2, and this is where you are going to have to turn in your Bibles. I want you to see this. If you haven't seen it before... I'm sure you have. But go to Psalm chapter 2. 
This psalm is a prophetic psalm for Armageddon in the end of days. And have you ever asked yourself, why does the devil think that if he stands toe-to-toe with God who created him, that they're ever going to pull it off? He, they don't, the demons aren't that dumb. Remember when Jesus came up to the guy that was possessed and he was breaking all the chains, the straight jackets wouldn't work, Prozac wouldn't work, all the psychotropic medications wouldn't work, therapy wasn't working, nothing was working. Cutting himself, hanging in around dead people, just kind of show you what, what was on his mind. He's possessed with legion, right? All these demons. And he said, um, it's not our time, Jesus. Don't, don't deal with this now. It's not our time. And so they knew, they, look, they know their time is short, and they know that they can't stand toe-to-toe with God. They know that. But a king that's full of pride, that has like maybe, you know, a few hundred million people in his kingdom with, with resources, like maybe endless supplies of oil reserves, maybe lots of natural minerals and resources to that people need to make computer chips or uh, batteries. Maybe you're sitting on lots of like those types of resources and you're a king and you think you're, you're invincible and this, you have absolute power and it's corrupted you absolutely. Well, the demons know and the fallen angels know standing toe-to-toe with God is just, a, it's an un, it's, it's just unwilling. They can't even beat Michael, the archangel. Their baddest dude on the block, Leroy Brown, the baddest fallen angel in the whole dang town, he can't even stand toe-to-toe with Michael the Archangel. Michael, good name, by the way. You're, you're, like, you're like, yeah. <laughs> so, like, if you can't even beat one of God's created angels, and there's, there, you're outnumbered two to one, so there's two-thirds of the good guys and one-third of the bad what, Like, what is going on? I wouldn't be surprised if, talking about uh, de-extinction, uh, if you're thinking about like um, cloning, I wouldn't be surprised if the demons are inspiring people to make clones so they could inhabit bodies. Remember the demon said, don't cast us out, put us in swine. You know that you're making that stuff right now in labs. You know that, right? No, we, no, that's just science fiction, okay. What are you gonna do when it's science fact? How are you gonna respond? So in Psalm chapter 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed Jesus, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord holds them in derision. Um, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said unto me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. Because the Bible says, even in Psalms, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of earth. God is, look, this is, Thousands of years ago, and if people were to rally today, God is going to say to them, look, hearken, kings, it's an impossible task. You're not able to win against God. 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in your way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are they who take the refuge in the Lord. Okay, on that note of armies gathered together against the Lord and the Lord's anointed, which is occult doctrine 101, they, they make Lucifer the light bearer out to be good, and they make God the creator out to be a dictator and bad. This calling good evil and evil good, this satanic confusion, will permeate the culture and the geopolitical map so much that people will make their weapons of mass destruction and unite just as Herod and Pilate united, which were at odds. But when it came to like discussing these things about being anti-Jesus, they're going to rally around the Antichrist who's saying, Jesus is the real enemy. Let's, throw, let's cast off our bonds. He is so restrictive, and he's such a dictator. I have come that you might have freedom, right? Look at this technology. That, look, I could extend your life. I have defeated cancer on your behalf. I have cured global warming. I have, I have, like, I have given you the hope of immortality if you only just kind of come into my system. And, and take, take, my, take my things, you know? Neuralink and certain things you can't mention online. Go to Revelation 19. Let's see this. Let's fast forward and look at 1911, which is a good gun, by the way, if you're into 45s. Verse, chapter 19 and verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe and dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, which is us, by the way, we're there, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword, which is to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. We just read that in Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury and the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called, all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who's sitting on the horse and against his army. That's why Psalm 2 says, he that sits in the heavens shall laugh. It's not like, I'm, like God's been, up until Revelation 19, God has sent 144,000 witnesses. He sent, he sent his angel that proclaimed the everlasting gospel worldwide. He, then he has, what, the, the two witnesses? Or I forget the number. We went over this one, Revelation. I get them all confused. Um, he has in his mercy and in his grace, and in the book of Revelation, the word repent is mentioned the most, more than any other book, because God knows your time is short, your time is short. It's foolish to gather yourself against the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar, it's foolish to think 
that you are some sort of God. You're, you're not. It's foolish. But so is the history of mankind and the way it's played out. So human kings and rulers are subject to God as he is the king of kings. Nebuchadnezzar was a ruler subject to God. The angels, the demons, the devils, all of them as well. Even you read about Apollyon or Abaddon, one in Greek, one in Hebrew. He's the god of war. You don't believe this stuff, I know, or maybe you do. He has been in chains, in, in Sheol, in the pit, and God's going to release him for a little bit during the great tribulation period at the end, and he's going to, all hell's going to break loose on earth. He's the, he's the one that you can read about in, uh, was it chapter 9, chapter 7? He's leading this, these weird beasts and these creatures that come, and, and men are going to want to cry out for death, but for five months, they're not able to die, but they want to die. Talk about suicidal ideation. I have to address this all the time in therapy. <laughs> they they want to die, but they can't. It is such a horrendous time. And God just says, I use him, and then he bounds him up and gets rid of him. God uses these things for his purposes. But even lesser gods in the host of God in the angelic unseen realm are subject to God. So human kings are, that are seen, and even unseen ones are all subject to God. In some cases, God will delegate responsibility to these unseen angelic hosts, as in the case of the watchers in Daniel chapter 4, um, where, where, they, where he allowed them to make collaborative de decisions with God. Look at this next passage. Go to, it'll be on the screen. The watchers. The sentence where he gives to King Nebuchadnezzar is by the decree of the watchers. Well, who are the watchers? They're a special class of angelic beings that, as the name applies, they never sleep, they watch, they behold. So by the decision by the holy ones, which is the reference to the watchers, to the end that the, the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will, and he sets over it the lowliest of men. So, the, so God's like, okay, you, you holy ones, you counsel, you watchers, you lesser gods, go ahead and decide what, what's going to go on with Nebuchadnezzar, report back to me. It's like God's doing the CEO program. He doesn't need to ask permission to anyone. God could do everything by himself. What he really wants is relationship. Uh, okay, Adam and Eve, I'm going to put you in the garden. You name, name whatever you want. You have dominion. I'm giving you dominion. We'll work together. God's not threatened. He's not, like, insecure, codependent. God, look, if you have all power, all resources, and you know everything anyways, nothing's going to catch you by surprise. Like, did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurs to God type of thing? If you're that type of being, look, this isn't a threat to God. You guys go ahead and decide. What are you going to do? That sounds good to me. I'm, be, I'm doing a lousy interpretation of God. But you could see that God, because he's so secure in his identity, he's God after all, he could give his watchers, these angelic beings, some delegated authority to decide. What do you guys want to do? I want to show you this. Um, just as God desires relationship with us, too, as we're co-laborers with God and his kingdom in the, scene in, uh, in the seen side under heaven and in the unseen side of heaven, God also collaborates and desires a relationship with his divine angelic beings. 
So the human beings, God's like, hey, what are, you, what are we going to do together? Do you know when Jesus says go into all the world and preach the gospel? He could do the whole job himself. He doesn't need us, but he wants to join in with us. And he says, and lo, I'm with you always, even at the end of the world. So he's like, when you go, I'm going with you. Let's do this together. You could do projects on your own, but when you ask your kids to join you or someone else, you could do it, but you're designed for relationship. God's, he wants relationship. Go to this next passage and the next slide. I want to show you this, how God does this with the unseen realm. 1 Kings 22, 19. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him and on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Look at this. He initiates this. He's like, hey, who enticed Ahab that he may go up and fall at uh, Ramoth Gilead? And one said uh, one thing, and the other one, so this, these, are the, these are the watchers. These are the divine counsel, and they're ca- talking with God. And then a spirit, one of these angelic beings, came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will go. I'll do this. And if you read the rest of it, he has a plan, and God says, okay, sounds good to me. Go do it. Because God's not, he's not intimidated. He's not insecure. He's not threatened. He wants relationship. That's why he gives us so much freedom. Most of the time we use our freedom for selfish reasons and like just like, eh, I'll get to you later, God, maybe Sunday. Right? Most of the time. I'm not saying that derogatorily towards us. I'm just saying that's kind of human nature. And angels have a free will. And a lot of times they participate. But when these spirit beings endowed with free will exercise their autonomy and rebel and act independent as Lucifer did, God will judge them and hold them accountable. So, yeah, high risk, high reward when you give an angelic being free will. Look at this next slide. You'll know this one in Isaiah 14. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. And that phrase in the ERV reads, the holy mountain where the gods meet. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And God says, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell and to the sides of the pit. And you can see that Luciferian arrogance in, in human rulers, but you could also see it kind of played out in the unseen rulers, where there's thrones, dominions, powers, and principalities that we see not, but as in heaven, so in earth. We just don't see it, so we don't believe it, because we're empirical. Because I don't believe in God, I believe in science, right? Because we don't see it, we don't believe it. But you better believe there's thrones and dominions, seen and unseen, as in heaven, so on earth. I want to show you, when you do rebel like this, go to the next slide, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. When it's all said and done, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. What can we learn then from this? From Daniel the king of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar. In wrapping this whole thing up, we could learn that God's will will be done in heaven as it is on earth. And let me just say this. If 
if the, the, the demons, the fallen angels, and the good angels all know the power of God, they're not deceived, or the devil kind of was in his pride. The kings of this earth are, but when it comes to where God is, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You've got the king of kings living inside of you. We could learn that we don't need to be afraid of Iran, Russia, China, North Korea, or any access of evil in geopolitical spectrums. Because our king and kingdom is not of this world, and he has the heart of the kings in his hand. You must believe this. And Daniel's a perfect example of, of demonstrating this. He's not intimidated by Xi and China. Are you kidding me? He's not intimidated by Vladimir Putin. Or what's the guy in North Korea, what's his name? I don't mean to be disrespectful, I don't know his name, but he, God's not intimidated by him. Or any of the, the Ayatollah Khomeini's in Iran that are, you know, we don't have nuclear power. And then we send like, create loads of billions of dollars here. Do what you want. <laughs> like, okay. God's not intimidated by this and all the injustice that you see. So we could also learn that as ambassadors of King Jesus, time is short for these people, and they only have a short window of time as we negotiate peace with them before it's too late, and there's a reckoning with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Look, if you have never received Jesus into your heart, you've never been translated, like it says in Colossians 1, out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light, the Bible says today's the day of salvation. Don't put it off. If you have received Jesus into your heart, the Bible says in Psalm 90, give us wisdom, O Lord. Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Just know, like, Tick-tock, tick-tock, and then that's all done. Let's stand to our feet, and let's be dismissed. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the rock-solid truth that you're King of kings, Lord of lords. You're the God of all lesser gods. And though they try to deceive people, I know that there's so multitudes of, of heavenly hosts that sing your praises that worship you, that even minister unto us as, as ministering spirits and guardian angels, and they help us as well. But even if we didn't have that, and Christ was all that we have in our hearts, Christ is all that we need. You're, you're all powerful. You're all knowing. You have everything. And so I'm thank you. Thank you that we're on, this, we're on your side. Team Jesus, King Jesus, help us to, help us to leave this place feeling secure in our relationship feeling empowered also that we have such a stewardship responsibility to re represent you in a, in a dying and lost world that are just being deceived. So as we go, Lord, help us to go be the church this week. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.